As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary. The series explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Dan Hines, current game designer at Sneaky Bastards. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Dan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very, very well. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly warm day, and that brings about its challenges sometimes. But uh, I'm, I'm going pretty well, especially nice. trying to put children to sleep, as we were just discussing a moment ago. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's an aside, and not something that we need to waste the, the listeners' time with, per se. So this is Dev Diary series. We talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and basically the journey that's led to this current point. Now, one of the things that I find most fascinating about you and your journey, and we'll obviously dive into some of those particular facets shortly, is the the different walks of the industry that you've experienced so far, and presumably those perspectives that you're going to bring with you to the development side of things. But before we get to all of that, I'd love to talk about some of your first gaming experiences. Dan, what was the first what was the first game that you recall playing? Uh okay. I can tell you the first game that I remember playing, and I can tell you the uh first game that i actually played that i don't remember what it is and it's this kind of maybe people out there can help me but i just have these weird random flashes of like child memories of it and it was kind of like uh, it was definitely like dos or amiga i remember one part of the game it was on a black screen and there was a face and you could like put makeup on the face you had like palettes or, or tools on the side. It was almost like a really baby version of Paint or Photoshop, right? And you could yeah, paint the face, like and then that you would win something for it. Um, I'm sure there was like mini games or challenges before that, like maybe quizzes or some kind of educational stuff. But that's um, the bit that sticks out. Yeah, and it's this it's this weird brainworm that I've had that I've been trying to. You ever try to look up an old game and you don't know what it oh, is, yeah. and you're and like, you don't know what it is. Game with weird thing, and there was pyramid. I don't know. Um, but apart from that, definitely one of the earliest games I played was uh, Captain Comic. Oh yes, um, okay. And the original Commander Keen. Like I definitely entered gaming uh, at the the DOS shareware um, era. And still some fantastic titles in that period. Again, obviously you just mentioned Commander Keen. There's a lot of, lo- lot of love for that franchise there. And uh, yeah, still a so, lot of people hoping that in some capacity it comes back properly. Funnily enough, when I was a games journalist, um, I got to go on a trip to id Software to see Rage for a preview. Yes. Um, and they gave us a tour of the office. And I didn't care about Rage because they showed me the original Commander Keen master <laughs> floppy disk. And I'm like, oh, this is why I'm here now. <laughs> And you're just working out in, in your rat brain at the time. How can I how can I smuggle this into my bag mm-hmm. and disappear, mm-hmm. never to be seen again? Yeah. Only 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 to pop it on eBay and make no. <laughs> um, so how did your taste kind of develop from there? As you as you grew up and you would have been exposed to more games, more platforms, more franchises. Were there any that really stuck out to you or that you really latched onto over the journey? Um. I think starting in the DOS era is what gave me an appreciation for really good pixel art. And part of that appreciation is, um, even though it's quite simplistic in a a stereotypical sense, um, as a kid, I loved games that implied a lot more to their world than 
was necessarily there or you could see like it would make you ask questions yeah. or intuit stuff um and that has carried over for me definitely into the 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 games that i want to make um but also it's it's sort of it's been a mainline through all the other different genres that that i've liked so obviously dos games are kind of there's a hell of a lot of platformers right but the thing oh, yeah, i'm talking about really congealed when i played um like Oddworld Abe's Odyssey, right? That yes. was this incredibly cinematic, beautifully presented 2D platformer that implied so much in its world just through its art um, alone. And that kind of uh, is something that's super inspiring, and it probably got me uh, to what my favorite genre is, which is like the immersive sim, right? So like the okay. XXs, the Thiefs, yes. uh, Dishonoreds, and, and all those kinds of things, because they pay as much attention to their world and their art and they imply a hell of a lot more um than what you necessarily have in front of you and that just kind of it draws you in and it sucks you in in a way that is captivating yeah well it always feels like there's something else around the corner whether it's a you know obviously on a mechanical level but also in terms of yeah that world building and and those various other little systems that are just working together in the background a lot of people don't necessarily even notice them but if you do you understand that there's layers upon layers upon layers there that can be really picked through and, and exploited in some cases, but just really harnessed for an amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. Any game that makes you feel like the world exists outside of your experience and story as the player and is kind of chugging along in the background is excellent. Yeah. Uh, and so obviously you rattled off a couple of examples there. So that, that was some particular favorites. Uh, you mentioned Deus Ex, the, the more modern take on those still uh, holding your interest. They're, they're a little different, but they do some absolutely incredible things um, that are sort of a little uh, left a field of what the original Deus Ex games um, are definitely yes. like uh, renowned for. Um, and they have some really fascinating takes on what I guess are probably more gamey mechanics in a way. Um, obviously, with the original game, you know, that was one of the, the games that I felt like, oh, I'm dropped into a world and it exists around me. Um, I think part of that was the pretty modern setting compared to, you know, pure fantasy or pure sci-fi games. Like yeah, pretty much the mundanity of just seeing a bunch of shipping crates and metal um, fences around and this gritty kind of urban environment was a real novelty there. Um, and obviously, like, the later Deus Ex games get a bit more flashy and a bit more sci-fi. They have a, yeah. an aesthetic that is a little bit more out there. Um but there are things they do with the characters and the city setting itself, um, especially in Mankind Divided, because it's in this one city that you visit again and again and again yeah. um, that really grounds you in a way that definitely the original games achieved as well. Oh, that's fantastic to hear, and uh, who knows what's in store for that franchise. Obviously, there's a lot of conjecture about it, but uh, he's hoping we see more of that as well as others in that sort of space in the future. Is there a game or a franchise at all that you perhaps attribute in some way as being responsible for your journey into the gaming industry? Or was it something that just kind of developed over time? Um, absolutely the original Thief. Um, okay. I th definitely the original Thief and Abe's Odyssey and Deus Ex. I know like, I'm sounding like a broken record at this point, but those are the three. Um, Thief for the reason that um, it is the first game that definitely... Um, put me in a a place and time that was uh like completely immersive in a way that i 
couldn't escape from as a player i know that sounds weird to say but like yeah. you know when you're playing a scary game and there's always little oh, bits yeah. and pieces around the edge of it where you kind of go like oh yeah this is the edges of the game and this is yeah. where the game is showing maybe not necessarily it seems but it's it's gameplay mechanics yeah. um i always attribute like you know resident evil and and silent hill um for all they achieve as as scary games there's uh a kind of edge to as as much as you can get sucked into them um yeah, if I didn't have that, I kind of was like, oh, I'm completely in this uh, in a way that I definitely did not experience before. Um, yeah, in the sense of that, that like, think, this is my playground and I can just do whatever within it. It's it's not so much that. It's just that there is such a thick atmosphere there yeah. that you get sold on everything. Um, the playground in Thief, in terms of mechanics, is actually uh, pretty contained. I don't want to say restrictive, but it's quite singular in focus right yeah. and it's very immersive in what it does um but there's a sense of atmosphere and sense of place uh in that game that was definitely like a, a paradigm shift for what i had experienced at the time yeah understood no that, that's a fantastic way of looking at it now uh an important aspect to it and obviously we are going to dive again into these things uh more a little later you you did speak about how uh, games journalism, games media was actually, it was a part of it as well as the development side of things. You mentioned these games. Were they? Do you consider them as being responsible for your pursuits into actual game development, or just to get into games full stop? Like, were they what drove you towards getting in, uh, like PC power play and and GameSpot? No, the, again, those things that we'll talk about shortly. Is was it more general? Like, I just want to get into games, or do you link them to your pursuit of game development per se? Right. Um. I I wanted to make games definitely since I was a kid, but uh, I I stopped myself doing it because I didn't know how to code, and my attempts at trying to code completely failed. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to make a game unless I can code. Therefore, what else can I do that is adjacent to games that I am good at? And one of that was writing, yeah. right? So um, it was definitely like games development first uh, and then trying and failing at that and then going, okay, well, yeah, games journalism is a thing that I can get into. Um, and I think those particular games were definitely more about inspiring me to go into game development eventually once I did yeah. get there. Um, and the, the general um, desire to like examine the design and the creation of games was what brought me into games journalism specifically yes okay yeah no that's that's fascinating uh, and uh, we'll be able to connect more of those dots shortly so uh some studies you were at the university of technology in sydney 2005 2009 and then the opportunity emerged for pc powerplay where How did, did you that pull up? that info from uh linkedin is a really okay. valuable resource All right, yeah um Dory, I haven't been digging. Like, I haven't been uh, digging through backends and all those sorts of things. No, uh, LinkedIn is no, a fantastic right. resource in that regard. Mm -hmm. So, uh, from yeah, from those studies, you then got your opportunity with PC PowerPlay. How did that first emerge? Well, I went to university to study graphic design because that's one of my other passions, yeah. right? And that was me trying to be like a completely logical and reasonable person, being like, "Well, I'm not going to make anything for myself in games." graphic design is a thing that i can do and there's clearly work um available there yeah, like at the time i was working as an assistant to a, a wedding photographer um and part of uh why i went to powerplay was um 
I kind of just on a whim sent an email about doing some freelance work um yeah. while i was doing this other uh like design work um and they accepted and were like yeah okay why don't you take over this column and i was like okay um here's a column every month about some random specific experience from a game um and they just kept offering me more and more work or i kept asking for more and more work i can't remember <laughs> which one it was maybe a bit of both um, somewhere in the middle yeah yeah but there was absolutely zero link between my studies and getting work at powerplay um what i will say though the most valuable skill i have in game development is knowing photoshop like i would not have been able to get a game made unless i knew that it's just this tool that in a pinch i can fix everything with so yeah oh that's great yeah and uh, that's all connected to your your studies i guess mm-hmm. specifically yeah so you spent a few years at PC Powerplay in a few different capacities there. So uh, just uh, from being, from, uh, well, from the very origin there, to a critic, deputy editor, you were an editor for a while there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, th- we've spoken about those first steps. How did, uh, as you're starting to build your reputation internally and presumably externally as well, and, and you're starting to get your own foothold in this industry, what was that like for you at this point? Because again, you'd, you'd spoken about how you realized that at least at the time game development wasn't for you but you've now started to find another path in what what was that what was that like for you at the time well the funny thing is like you you don't really build a reputation for yourself in uh australia it's it's quite small at least at the time it was um with games journalism there were very few jobs very few full-time jobs um and you didn't really build yourself up as a presence or a persona certainly not in the way that you're seeing twitch streamers and youtubers um, today do that right um so it it was more about uh getting access through that to other industry figures and then forming relationships with them whether that's publishers or other developers that you would see every now and then through different games and that sort of thing um what i will say though is while at powerplay i started sneaky bastards which is or was first a website entirely devoted to covering stealth games um and i actually gained a reputation through that more than i did through powerplay oh right okay for for example i would go to e3 and i would have you know pc powerplay on my badge and i would you know meet developers from like thief and splinter cell and they'd be like oh you're that guy from sneaky bastards (laughs) <laughs> and so I was kind of going That's like, awesome. oh, okay, this is a thing that is now a thing, you know, like it's, it's actually starting to grow its own legs here. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really quite cool and so i mean you know you're reflecting on that and some of those interactions what was going through your head at that point like you know how do i how do i channel this do i pursue this in, uh, in some way shape or form what what was kind of buzzing around in your head at that point when when people started to make those sort of connections as opposed to dan hines pc powerplay um i think they just recognized that we got stealth games like we understood what a lot of developers were trying to do um and i'll always remember like the the first preview for dishonored i went to um went to san francisco for this and we were talking to harvey and rafael colantonio um and one of the other journalists from the states was like oh so it's kind of like a mix of bioshock and assassin's creed and they were like i i i guess um and then i went and chatted to them afterwards and i was like oh so this is like thief right and they're like okay yeah no you get it you 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 understand what we're doing here right 
Um, and so it was kind of... Um, I didn't think much of it in terms of taking it elsewhere. It was more just a really satisfying um, reflection or acknowledgement that we were doing something good or like there was like some kind of an audience out there for the stuff we were doing on the side. Yes. Yeah. Do you have any particular favorite experiences from that time at PC Powerplay? I can't oh, remember if you said before. Was that, was that the Commander Keen experience or was that through games? That was, that was definitely the Commander Keen experience. Um, I, I met and interviewed everyone I, I wanted to interview. Like I, I interviewed John Carmack. Um, I got to chat to and interview Warren Spector twice. Living um, the dream. And God, who else? Uh, obviously like Harvey Smith from um, Arcane. Um Funnily enough, everyone is like, oh, E3, that would be my dream to go to. E3 is horrible. E3 is uh, Yeah, I, I mean, I've never, never been, but no, it's, 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 I, I understand the circumstance, and yeah, yeah there's too yeah. much hustle and bustle for my liking. It's definitely too much hustle and bustle. Um, and also, it's the worst place to experience a game, right? You just, it completely goes in one ear and out the other and just leaves your system. Yeah. Um, I, I loved running into uh, Ragnar Tornquist, who was the designer and writer on the longest journey in dreamfall okay. um and just being like hey can we like get lunch and i want to interview you and maybe put you on the cover of our magazine which we did um, oh that's awesome yeah yeah and, and that then was just also, a chance that was just a chance encounter uh chance encounter of the sorts. other chance encounter i had was i saw on twitter that lawn lanning was at the e3 oh. hall and he's like does anyone want to lawn lanning obviously the guy behind oddworld Oddworld. And uh, he was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be over here if anyone wants to come and say hi. And I did and organized an interview with him. And we got a cover for the Abe's Odyssey remake as well, which was um, super cool. Uh, but yeah, I think like along those lines, it'd be two things. It'd be meeting and interviewing all the people behind these games that I played in my childhood and just being like, actually having conversations. I never, I never fanboyed out or anything. Like that's yeah. super unprofessional to do. But having conversations on their level with them about their work was super um super satisfying and just just a great experience um did you did you find yeah, it ahead. challenging though you obviously just mentioned the the fanboying out component now at the end of the day there is that history that you've got with some of these franchises and mm. atta- that are attached to some of these people there did you find it hard to be able to to uh, to separate professional dan from i love you and the work that you've done dan was it was that no, a challenge i'm, 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 a, I'm a really fucking good interviewer like i will not <laughs> you know be humble about that i can i can knock that out of the park um but no, it was that's, also that's, like that's awesome. the fact that i have this interest in design and creation and you know in uh a sense that's like oh this is something i have wanted to do at the time i had not been able to do it but wanting to get deeper insights into the way these people's minds worked and like getting to the point where how they came up with these games or what they did to get them there um was just personally fascinating to me and therefore that came across to them as well right so it's it definitely wasn't it wasn't a difficult thing to separate no that's i mean that's great to hear and i mean actually what you just described there the idea of like how did we get to this point and the, the journey i mean that's ultimately the the core behind this show as well so mm-hmm. um it seems like we're shooting for similar things in that sort of philosophy anyway and that intent cool. so the next chapter in your career was GameSpot. how yep. did that opportunity emerge obviously you know again a few years at pc powerplay at this point and there was yep. the GameSpot au division there so mm-hmm. it wasn't a reach necessarily uh for you to make that jump but how did it first begin 
So I applied there as a joke. Um, I oh. submitted, like, I, there was an ad on, like, LinkedIn or something, and I applied. I didn't even put a resume or a CV on. I just put my name on. And I got a callback from their manager in the U.S. being like, hey, are you interested in this? And I'm like, well, now I am. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think what was happening at Powerplay was I had been editor for a year, um, and I had felt that I had done everything I could do within magazines. There are obviously a yes. very static format um and there's only so much you can do in print you can do some really fun things in print but there is a, a very narrow kind of spectrum of what it's what is possible yeah. um and i wanted to move into video like on the side in my spare time i was doing a lot of video editing and like that as a craft was something that i loved like i got a real kick out of that um video and and audio editing as well like we did a couple of yes. podcasts at powerplay uh, which was super fun. Um, and so, obviously, GameSpot being online, they had the capacity to do that. Uh, and that's kind of what, I guess, interested me, you know. Just get to diversify what you're doing and broaden that skill set a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's... The tough thing was, like, Powerplay was very specifically my niche. Like, this was exactly the um, avenue of video games that I loved and was familiar with. And obviously I had been reading that magazine since I was a kid as well. So I had a, you know, yep. really strong connection to that. Um, and GameSpot being a much larger global multi-platform site, it wasn't going to have that singular focus. Um, even though within that focus, there's so many different ways you can go. Um, and so part of branching out to that, even though I wanted to go into a new format, I was kind of concerned about like, well, how am I going to be covering games once I got there. So given that, and as you said, that, that oh, GameSpot still has, and to this day, still has the, the traditional written review and written feature piece, but there are the podcasts, there are the video components, there are the uh, podcast, all those sorts of aspects, those key pillars of the company then and now, uh, some of those aspects weren't available to you, as you mentioned before with PC Powerplay. How did you, and not to mention, there's a quite a difference in the scale of the two and the reach and those sort of things. How did you adjust to that difference at first? Did that did that require you to think about your work in any different way or yeah, you know, so time management, main, any of those sorts yeah, of things? Yeah, yeah. The main difference was um, the way that we wrote in Powerplay was for like the knowledgeable reader. We assumed a lot of um, existing experience and knowledge yeah. um based on the fact that it is a niche magazine and the fact you're buying a magazine about this probably means you do know this stuff yeah. um for GameSpot, it was a completely different writing style where you had to assume nothing right if you made a reference to a certain game or a certain developer or a certain specific thing within a game you had to explain it right and explaining that took up part of your word count so you had to write in such a way that was much more generalized, um, much less drawing on history and much more kind of just like in the moment the or um, yeah. self-contained, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That That's, that's an interesting different perspective on it. Yeah. Because it's not something I necessarily would have considered. I mean, I, I did actually myself consume a little bit of PC power play and a little bit. Of, I mean, I wasn't the biggest PC guy back in the day, but mm -hmm. trying to keep, um, abreast of what was going on, I would I would dabble a little bit in PC Power Play. I'd also consume GameSpot and various other and Hyper, for example, and various other magazines and or sites over the journey. And I, I can't say, I guess, you know, 
how long ago was that? Ten, ten years, getting close to in some in some cases with some of the some of the different things I was consuming. It's not something I'd necessarily considered at the time, but now that you mention it, there was quite a difference there in yeah the way things were presented and what they're expecting of the reader. Mm-hmm. So that's Absolutely. that's really quite fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um. And the other thing was like, uh, I I was not that much of a console guy. Um. Before that, like I had had PC and a Game Boy. Those were my two systems growing up. Uh, and obviously, like, we had... I dabbled in, like, PS3 and 360 and PS2 games and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But the the assumed knowledge on that kind of a site um, is a kind of completely segregated from the assumed knowledge of PC stuff. GameSpot was definitely not anti-PC, but they kind of... It wasn't important, right? It was definitely... It yeah, was okay. all about sort of consoles, the console big systems, space. Xbox versus PlayStation, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, going into that, uh, it, the challenge there was trying to catch up on all that history <laughs> while yeah, okay. like being intro to that uh, workflow as well. Yeah, and stepping in without missing a beat at the same time would be mm-hmm. bring about its challenges. Uh, so, were there any particular opportunities that you, you managed to explore while you were there that you really look back, up, uh, look back upon fondly? Um, I I think experiencing E3 from a website perspective um, was definitely interesting. Um, previously, I'd only gone like four or so times as print, and in print, you as bad as E3 is, um, and in print, you have the time to take your interviews, run between appointments, and kind of digest them each night. Right, like you, yes, you aren't. De- depending on when your magazine deadline falls, well, yeah, the, may yeah, not necessarily timing. be working to get stuff into print that night. Um, with Gamespot, we were doing all that stuff and then writing until two a.m. and then going back in the next day at like nine or ten a.m. Start all um, over again. Yeah, and that that seriously made me hate video games. That process, and I think it was valuable experiencing that because. I wanted to never do that again, right? I, I never wanted to find myself in a work situation where I was starting to hate the thing that I was focusing on or covering. Um, I know that's a negative. I know that's not what you were kind of asking exactly. But well, no, but it's, I mean, still an important aspect though. I mean, no one wants yep. that in what, whatever profession they're in. You don't want to grow to, uh, to, to hate or at least have some sort of distaste for mm-hmm. the thing that you that is your day job. It's, it's exactly, not good for your well-being. Yeah. And, and even like on Powerplay, we definitely had a bunch of late nights getting a magazine out the door um, in the last few days, but I never resented them. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely resented this because... Like, I'll give you an example. Um, because I, I was joining a much bigger site with a bunch of US and UK editors, I was given kind of like the lower tier games to cover. Yeah, okay. And one of the games I remember having to write up at 2am was this anime game where you punch women and their clothes fall off. And I'm like, I don't want to be doing this. this There's I nothing enjoyable about this. There's yeah. nothing redeeming about this. It's just gross, right? Um, yeah, I'm with but, you there. But their, their approach to E3 was we need to cover every single game because Oof. SEO, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And we don't, and we're upholding to publishers in certain ways. We promised to speak about X, Y, and Z, so we're going to speak about X, Y, and Z. Honestly, I don't even think there was a publisher like 
promise or, or or chat about that particular game it was just there it was something they hadn't gotten covered yet so that's what i got assigned you know so we'll do it oh yeah that, that's that's even that's even worse uh so in the meantime and we've already we've already spoken about it once there was sne- uh, sneaky bastards and things are slowly building in the background there obviously you've been doing your work uh at this point in time so we're talking about GameSpot in a 2014-15 window here the idea that has become wildfire presumably was stirring in the back of your mind at this point, maybe even well underway. When, when did that first, or when, when did that seed first kind of emerge, and how did you start juggling those different components? Yeah, so I have, um, I can't remember exactly when Sneaky Bastard started, but it might have been two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Do you know? You probably know better than I do. Uh, I've, I've got you listed as joining 2012, but I don't have the specific start for them. I'm sure I could dig that out in the meantime. But. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so I think there there is definitely like a Google chat in 2012 or thereabouts where I tell the other Sneaky Bastards writers basically as a joke, like, oh yeah, you know, the plan is to write about a bunch of stealth games for a few years and then make one. Um, and they were like, yeah, ha ha ha, okay, sure. Um, but then in like 2013, uh, I started looking at, um, Game Maker, which is a game creation IDE that's kind of designed for beginners in a way that is much more approachable than anything I'd kind of toyed with before. Um, and so in 2013, I started making a prototype, uh, for what would eventually become Wildfire. Yeah. So that's when it started. It goes back quite a way now. So then from there, and focusing on the, the wildfire component now, and we start leaning more into the game development scene, uh, does the date May 2nd, 2015 stick out at you for any particular reason? I've got it, I've got it noted here. So <laughs> does, does it was ring any bells? Was that the original release date we put on the Kickstarter? Uh, no, no, so that was 2016. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll have a chat about that component shortly. No, that is the day that you got full funding for the game. So that must have been an incredibly exciting day. Like when the Kickstarter hit 100%? Uh, it wasn't because that's what got me fired from GameSpot, but yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so mi- mixed emotions that day, I guess. Yes. Yes, definitely. So ha- how did that conversation play out you know, without necessarily tossing anyone right. under the bus or anything so, like that? So and... this was at the height of Gamergate, right? And you gotta right. you got to think back to um, what sites were kind of being put under in terms of audience pressure um and basically they wanted to not have any minuscule sense of impropriety from anyone that was associated with the site um and so i had been working on this uh in the background and when we got the funding on the kickstarter uh they were like you need to either choose to divest yourself from this and still work at the company or you can't work at the company anymore uh and so obviously right. i chose the game yeah. um but yeah that was definitely definitely a mixed day so i mean obviously the kickstarter had been going for a little while at that point presumably people against what knew that you were starting to work on this game anyway it wouldn't i'm guessing it didn't surprise them so how did that conversation not emerge prior that's to, a great question. To the day that you know the, the Kickstarter goes live, that that seems very strange to me. Looking from That's the outside, a great question, of um, and I don't have the answer to it. Fair enough. Very very interesting one. So mm-hmm. uh, unresolved, I guess we'll we'll leave that one there. But the 
I guess if we if we separate the the termination of your time at uh, GameSpot there and focus on the the actual Kickstarter itself to have it to have a game supported by so many people and to for them to put their trust in you financially, but also their actual you know <laughs> there's there's confidence there that's being placed in you. That must have been in itself quite exciting, though. Here's the thing: it's not inseparable because what Wildfire was meant to be was never something that I put. I never wanted to put all my eggs in that basket, right? It was yeah. our first game. Um, a number of people working on it. It was the their first game. Absolutely, it was mine as well. Um, yeah. I had no idea if it would be successful. I had no idea if we would be able to even complete it. Um, I had no idea what the full process for getting there would be like. Um, and in order to do that and obviously maintain my like mental and physical well-being... I needed to have a safety net um, and that safety net was obviously being employed right so what happens is when that becomes successful we asked for a very small amount because we just I didn't know whether people were going to um, grok it right like this was definitely at the yeah. height of the Kickstarter craze you were seeing incredibly well-produced and um, famous I'm going to say games being put yeah. on Kickstarter um, and seeing something, a small indie game from a developer no one's ever heard of before. I would not have uh, considered that to be a guaranteed success. Right. Um, yeah, understood. And so for that reason, the fact that it is successful, but then suddenly all my eggs are in that basket, it becomes, it kind of undercuts the, um, the joy of, of seeing how many people, are actually supporting it or confident in it um we didn't really get the time to like bask in that in the way that i would have liked to um but at the same time that's you know much of a muchness yeah uh, i guess it's a bit of a shame that you didn't necessarily get to enjoy it the way that you perhaps ought to have but uh mm -hmm. it's it's worked out all right in the end from everything i can tell looking and uh, looking from the outside uh so how did the the core idea of the game actually emerge because oh. it's, it's a really like it's a concept that people have fallen in love with the, obviously the people who yeah. backed it but also a number of people that have played it post-release that perhaps didn't even know about the game until it actually had come out it's it's a concept that's really taken some hearts so yeah. how did that actually begin in the first place well one of my favorite games is far cry 2 um and far cry 2 yep. had a fire propagation system at the heart of it uh and it wasn't really that significant of a mechanic in the grand scheme of things for that game it was just something that was there that added to the unpredictability of combat situations that you would get into yeah. um it's and i i was absolutely fascinated by that specific mechanic and i said to myself can we make a whole game out of that mechanic um and so that was kind of the very first germ of that idea um and then in order to like the first prototype we built was just fire propagation right bunch of squares fire spreading around you know simple um and then i was like okay well how do i make this a game this is currently yes. a system what is the game and i was like well how about you can move and control the fire and that is your interaction um and so that became sort of the first proper gameplay mechanic um and at the same time, one of my favorite shows was Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, yeah, um, okay. Yeah, good choice. Big yeah, fan. and the, the thing about that show is 
if you look at the way the characters in that use the elements, there's really no equivalent in video games, right? When elemental systems are in video games, they're often done in a really boring way that's like, uh, water does double damage to fire, oh, yeah, yeah, or, okay, or you. you know, poison procs this thing. There, there's um, a rock, paper, scissors aspect to it, basically. There's a rock, paper, scissors aspect to it, but I wanted elements to be used in a way that promoted utility, right? Yeah. Utility isn't just like pure combat values. It's like, this is a new function, this is a new ability, this adds a new verb to my moveset, um, and I wanted to kind of have them used in, in really interesting and creative ways. So that was definitely like the full proper baseline idea for it. Yeah, and it's and it's one that obviously was built upon really successfully and it's become a fantastic game. Um and as we've mentioned before, like a lot of people have really, really grown to love it. Those who obviously jumped on board with the Kickstarter, but those that have discovered it in the 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 years since that uh, Kickstarter launch. Now you did mention before the uh proposed date of release, uh which yeah, yeah in twenty sixteen and it, it came out in 2020. Um, what was that like? You, you've got uh, Kickstarter. Sorry, uh, what am I looking for? The word, uh, People who backed the game, sorry. Backers, uh, yeah. And they would have signed up with an expectation, to some degree anyway, that it was going to come out in 2016 and it didn't. How do you, how do you massage that relationship with people in such a way that people aren't going to feel burned for one of for one of a better phrase um and yet they can see they can see the roadmap they can see the journey that you're going on they they've bought in and they're willing to kind of wait it out what, what was that like and what challenges did that bring for you and and the team working on it yeah well um here's the thing i have a lot of experience in community management obviously working at powerplay and gamespot um and gamespot you know during the height of gamergate um you obviously oh, yeah. okay. just that brings about their... a skill set for sure yeah yeah you, you take their concerns seriously um and it was fine for us because relatively speaking we had a very small amount of backers like only about yeah. 1000 1200 um and all all we did was post like hey here's where the game is currently at here is a bunch of footage or gifs or even like playable prototypes um for people who had you know back to that level um, so they can see actually progress being made um, and then we just realistically say like you know we think maybe we can hit this or maybe we can hit that um, and you just kind of be honest about uh, the challenges that you're facing like for example um, partway through development I was diagnosed with like early onset psoriatic arthritis right so I can no longer use a computer mouse and right. part of what part of those delays are me adjusting to obviously this new kind of like workflow with tools that I can use. Like I now use like a graphics pen. Um, and that seems like a small change, but it, it disrupts um, everything that you're kind of used to. And yeah, you've, with. you've, you've known everything to be a certain way. And when that's, when the table's kind of flipped over on you like that, yeah. there's, there's an, an adaptation that needs to take place. And, yeah, for some people, depending on the circumstances, that can be really quick. Others, not so much. And again, that's purely down to the circumstance itself. So, I can yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. So I w I just posted, hey, this has happened. I have this thing. Here are the effects of it. It's going to you know take longer. And the comments were like, that's totally fine. Like, please look after yourself. Like, you don't need to like injure yourself or put yourself in any kind of harm to get this out the door. You know. You got some so great backers there. 
it, it is, but we encourage that because of the way we posted up into points like that, right? Like you kind of, um, you're given the community that you uh, create yourself. You set those boundaries. Um, you set those tones, and that's that was just really fortunate because we had a, a basically 98% of people were like, "That's totally fine." I think over the entire course of that five-year um, development Kickstarter period, there was only two people that asked for a refund, and that was just fantastic to me because I was like, "Wow!" Yeah, I mean, out of thousands, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's great. Now, obviously, you've mentioned one of the one of the develop, uh, development challenges you you had there. Uh, but what else? And again, you've you've come from a media perspective. You have attempted to get into game development previously and realized it wasn't for you, at least at the time. What other challenges did you start to experience along the way? And did did some of that time in the media help in some respects? Was there were there any little nuggets nuggets of advice that you'd picked up as you've been walking through these various studios and seen them in action, or you've spoken to someone that really helped you in some ways? Yeah, I think. Um... The biggest challenge was, as I mentioned, like we were never meant to put all our eggs in this basket. And because we had, the game had to be good, right? And yeah. and by that, I don't mean fantastic game of the year potential or whatever. I, I just mean that as a first game, it had to at least be completely internally consistent and deliver a self-contained experience that was valuable in some way to some people um yeah that is the hardest possible thing to achieve um and because of that we had to take that extra time to achieve that i think if i was if i still had like a full-time job i would have definitely like cut a lot more out and released a smaller game much earlier um yeah understood. we just didn't have the opportunity to do that and therefore we kind of had to um write it out to the end in terms of nuggets that I picked up um, in media, what being in media does, especially a reviewer, is it gives you this like database in your brain of ways other games have solved certain design problems. And you can go and refer to that instantly if you are encountering yeah. a similar or same problem in your own game. Um, I was very fortunate that one of my favorite games ever uh, Mark of the Ninja released, you know, uh, I think it was a year, same year we did the Kickstarter. Um, and Mark that of the Ninja was, right? yeah, I think it was 2013. Um, and Mark of the Ninja solved basically every 2D stealth game visual communication problem that we would eventually encounter, right? So we would always go back and be like, oh crap, how did Mark of the Ninja solve this? And we would see it and it would be perfect and we would adapt that. Um, that's a handy reference it's it's close enough to plagiarism that you know i <laughs> uh, look nell's the designer of it he he's he's a great guy and we've interviewed him a bunch for sneaky bastards as well and and he loves what we've done with wildfire so that was super encouraging to see um but the point is imitation even... and flattery and all those things right yeah yeah yeah. you know you know um but the point is like every game i've played throughout from being a kid through being in media up to now has helped in some small way to actually get this game out the door um and i think that if you don't have that much experience or that wide of an experience it may just take you longer or you may not have those kind of internal resources 
to sift through and well, be like, one well, of those... how have other games done this? You know. Yeah, kind of. It ends up falling down to one of those uh, you don't know what you don't know scenarios, and yep. so you, you're kind of spinning your tires for a while until yep. your eyes are open somehow, or maybe someone else brings some sort of experience with them that helps you. So I can appreciate that entirely. Now, the danger of that is that you might make something that is entirely derivative. And I will be the first to say, like, Wildfire itself is an original combination of already existing parts that have been seen in a bunch of other games. Like, every single... Like I said, like, it started with the fire propagation system from Far Cry 2. Um, the visual design the communication Mark of Mark of the Ninja. The, Ninja. the, the side-scrolling cinematic platforming from Abe's Odyssey, right? Like, it's... There's all these little things that we have taken and put together in a way that itself does make a new thing. But I think to a lot of people, in a very valid way, um, you might not be making as wholly original a product if you instead just approach it from completely left of field, which is not what we did. I mean, there is ultimately that... Uh some of you know the concept of you know being more than the sum of its parts you can look at a, a game or any sort of um, entertainment medium i might add and just go look i can see a little bit of this here and i can see a little bit of that there and you can see these threads that have been pulled upon but it's about how it comes together at the end of the day and that's where something wholly unique can be created so uh it looks like and you know from my experiences with the game so far and and again what we see uh from pl- plenty of people on the internet uh talking about it the You've, you've pulled on all the right threads and brought them all together in a really cohesive whole that despite the fact that it does draw po- have these inspirations that are you know quite apparent it still pulls them together in a way that feels unique uh yeah i i would say so um i think that it's definitely a kind of game that appeals to specifically the kind of person that i am like i ultimately made this game for me uh and there are, i know that there because we had such an audience with sneaky bastards i know that there are other people out there who like those kinds of games right so it was um definitely validating to have that knowledge and not just think am i making this completely esoteric thing that no one else is going to get you know well it turns out that wasn't the case so so you're all right in that regard in the end an important thing for us to note is the fact that as we record this and by the time it goes live uh, the circumstance will have changed a little bit but as we record this the game is on the verge of launching on consoles uh, right. now you yep. mentioned that uh, previously very much a, a, a PC guy in the past, but it must be quite exciting to get the game into the hands of uh, huge other audiences there. Obviously, we've just seen new consoles launch, um, the PS4 and Xbox One. They've sold heaps and heaps of consoles already. must be really exciting to get this into the hands of a whole other audience. Look, here's the thing. When we launched the game, the the most messages we got weren't like congratulations on launching it was when's it coming out on switch now, of course um, it is. it's always so obviously question. it's it's great <laughs> to finally um i hope each of those people go and buy it uh but it's, well, he's, it's yeah, great he's hoping. To, yeah it's great to finally see it come out on um those platforms and like for me personally like i said like i was a pc guy and a game boy guy as a kid uh and to see yeah. our game on a portable nintendo console is definitely very very cool Oh, for sure. No, I completely understand that one. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you referenced the "is it coming to Switch" question because yeah, I've, I've been to a few PAX um, booths over the journey, and you see someone's already just handwritten there, "Yes, it's coming to Switch" because they know the question's coming, yeah. and they're just trying to get ahead of it. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, the, the date for that now, obviously, as we said before, it's uh, 
well, it's out uh, for anyone who's listening to the podcast now. Um, it ha- you know the turnaround hasn't been overly long, but since since it launched on PC and then it's come around to console, so that that's fantastic. You're not out of the loop for for all that long, uh, uh, console players, I should say. Uh, no, that's right. But how- I'll tell you what, like uh, obviously being new to this, um, the amount of work that it takes to get a game on console uh, is something I did not anticipate. Um, we had obviously right. our publisher was definitely um, super helpful in that regard and set us up with a great porting team um, who I worked like closely alongside. Um, but the amount of little tweaks and the amount of little things that you need to do to actually suit each platform is definitely something I didn't anticipate. And that's definitely right. been an eye-opening experience. Is it the sort of thing now that leads you to consider with whatever happens to come next? I won't push you too much on that. Uh, whatever happens to come next, would you consider going, okay, let's let's explore the possibility of maybe releasing these simultaneously? Or would you uh, would you still it, like to... It's, I, it's I'm more gonna focus that on the if I was making a best. second game, there are things that I know to do at the start that would make it easier in the end. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, without without pushing too far, is there uh, are there already thoughts bubbling away as to what could be next? Whether it's we, whether no, it's in it's, the form of a sequel we, or something really else entirely. We've really got to look at uh, the kind of total success of, of the game and whether it's going to have enough success to fund um, a potential right. second one. Um, and that includes like waiting for the console release and seeing uh, what, what happens those are like and how they come in. Um, I would love the opportunity to make a second game. Um, I have three ideas ready. And oh, good. It, it just depending on like whether look, I tell you what, I'm I'm still honestly recovering from the release of this. Uh, no, it's, that's it's been difficult. Um, it has been something I've not anticipated would take this long. Um, but once I do, I can definitely have a look at that and see where we're at and whether that's something we can pursue. Well, fingers crossed that. Uh on top of the PC success you've had so far, that the consoles help further that and that it opens up these possibilities for you because, you know, Wildfire proves that uh, those ideas are really paying off and I'd love to see what else is bubbling away there, what you've got jotted down, what the notebook has in it or something like that. And I'd love to see you get to explore those ideas. So as we start to wind things down, just cycling a bit back more to you specifically, is there anyone out there that you've worked alongside or you've met, spoken to, you look at from afar that really inspires you and the work that you put in? Oh, God. It's um, it's definitely Harvey Smith and Warren Spector. Um, I, I've yep. chatted to Harvey a bunch over my career, and we have exactly the same idea of, of what we want to do in games. Um, his games, Dishonored, you know, Days X, um, they have absolutely inspired me in a way that... Uh, is extremely motivating. Um, Warren Spector, obviously being lucky enough to interview a couple of times, um, I have to credit him with ultimately pushing me to trying to make a game. Um, Because I was interviewing him at one time, and he was like, he literally said, why are you writing about games? You should be making them. Like, you... All right. All the things you're you're saying here, like, you should be making games. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, Yes, sir. Okay, I'll, I'll do it now, sir. (laughs) <laughs> Basically, yeah. So I, I definitely um, am, am thrilled to see, you know, whatever their work is. Uh, and it's always inspiring, um, kind of analyzing it and drawing inspiration from it, you know. 
That also sounds like it might have been the closest moment you ever had to actually fanboying out whilst in a whilst in an interview. <laughs> just, just as no, as you I, I kept it. it very cool. I just I definitely went back to the hotel and fanboyed later, and then just <laughs> a lot of fanning yourself <laughs> off. Uh, so, what have been some of the most valuable lessons and experiences you've had in in your time in development so far, or actually in the industry as as a whole? I should say. God, um, lessons. I'm sure that I have learned a whole bunch of little ones. Um, and it's like, don't kind of don't hard. launch Kickstarter at the same time that Gamergate is really popping off. Yeah, that would be one. <laughs> um, okay. Okay, no, here's a lesson. Um, we, we have this uh, game development meetup, or we did before COVID, um, yes. here in Sydney, and the everyone would get together in a bar and demo their game for people. And, you know, they would give feedback and you would chat yeah. to people about their experiences and that sort of thing. Is this through the IGDA? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, for Wildfire, I was far too prone to take that feedback at face value and okay. consider it gospel right um i think that if i were to do this again i would have a lot more self-confidence in our original approach and our original ideas um and i would definitely want to uh maintain those as long as possible rather than potentially um conceding to what might be uh opinions of people who are just seeing the game or having trouble with a certain aspect or yeah. haven't had time to familiarize themselves with that um i definitely i definitely think that we've proven ourselves to have a certain type of approach now um and i think that for sure i would be able to maintain that in development and while showing people and not feel self-conscious about if someone doesn't get it straight away do you know what i mean yeah and i mean they're just the things that i guess you ultimately learn from having been through the process once before yeah so mm -hmm. and even just with multiple exposures and those sort of things you start to develop that that skill and that that different layer of thinking when it comes to these sorts of things and how you digest the information that, and feedback yeah. that comes back yeah the, the best advice i ever received on that regard was um when someone gives you feedback about their game the thing they are saying is wrong but the reason they are saying that is right okay so you might have someone say hey i think the run speed is a bit too slow so you go okay that might not necessarily be the reason increase the run speed there might be something else that is actually causing them to think that you have to kind of take it and take a step back and go, what is the root cause of this and fix that thing? Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it because ultimately the player uh, is, you know, it's that face value experience that they're having and that there's, you don't necessarily see the systems, especially on the spot like that and you're, you're testing something out. You don't necessarily see those other systems at play in the background. Absolutely, Unlike some of the yeah. Thiefs and Deus Ex titles that we spoke about before, which <laughs> leads sure. me to the next question and I suspect I know what the answers are. I might've even just outlined exactly what those are. If you could be credited for in any capacity for any game that has ever existed, so you could go back and just retroactively add your name to the credits in some capacity. Special thanks if that's all you're if that's all you're looking for. What game would it be? I I would not presume to have the temerity or, or talent to be credited on any of the particular games that I would like to be credited. That's where on, special but... thanks can come in, and you can just <laughs> yeah, thanks for being but, there, Dan. Uh, 
I tell you what, it would probably be uh, Breath of the Wild because I think that particular game happens to be this incredible synergy of all of the things that I like. It has that really interesting systems-based approach to its world and its gameplay mechanics um, and your player verbs, um, but it's married to that Nintendo Zelda-esque like beauty and joy that they yeah. seem to uniquely be able Harness to so well yeah yeah that's that's a fantastic choice uh and yeah completely understand the rationale behind that and i'm sure you'll be one of many that will mention breath of the wild over the journey because it's <laughs> it's something else that's for sure yep building off that maybe it's the exact same answer uh a question that i've baked into the show recently is if you had the opportunity to just erase your memory of any title and get to re-experience it you don't have those nostalgia goggles. You're able to just take it all in again from 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 scratch. What game would it be? Yes, it would absolutely Breath be Breath of the Wild again. Wild again. Um, <laughs> I think because that game has... I've never seen another open world game do this, but there is such a unique approach to discovery in that game. Um, partly because of the way it's set up. You know, It's not heavily icon-based. It's not heavily waypoint-based. It yep. forces you to actually go out there and explore. But the things it's that subtle. you can find... Sorry. It's really subtle in that respect. Subtle, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely subtle. Um, but the things that you can find are oftentimes completely unique. Um, I will never forget the first time... I, we were playing over Christmas, I think. No, came out in March, didn't it? Yes. We were playing uh, with a couple of housemates. And the first time we saw one of those dragons spawn in the sky, we yep. just all like yelled, Dragon! What is that? <laughs> um, and once things like that happen, your idea of what the game world is greatly expands, right? Because you don't know what is going to be over the next hill or over the next mountain. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah and there's that, that's something that that game does better than most. I, I can appreciate that entirely. Uh, so as we wrap things up here... I want to make sure that uh, anyone listening to the show today has an opportunity to uh, catch up on Wildfire, maybe pick up Wildfire if they haven't done so already. So let's just double down on everything we spoke about before. Where can people get Wildfire? Because it is out on consoles now. Yeah, so if you go to wildfire-game.com, um, you can definitely find links to it there. Uh, if you go to humblegames.com slash wildfire, you'll get multi-platform links. Um, if you just search Wildfire in the eShop, PlayStation Store, uh, Xbox Store uh, and on Steam, you'll find it there as well. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Wildfire Game, and you can follow me on Twitter at D H I N D E S. Perfect. Thank you very much for that, uh, listeners. I hope you really enjoyed a really fascinating story there, Dan. Uh, I'm really appreciative for you coming on the show. You have experienced a number of different perspectives from this industry and brought them all together in this really fantastic product that is Wildfire. And I'm really hopeful that the console numbers are what they need to be in order to help facilitate whatever ideas you have next, because I'm really, really keen to see them. Thank you very much for coming aboard. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. 
sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until the next episode, however, that's been Dan's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.